Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuibby. I'm your host, as always. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the podcast. I'm very excited to welcome Kate Cotter. Kate is from the Sierra Psychedelic Society, and this episode is all about psychedelics. All of the various psychedelic substances or compounds, things like psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, MDMA. Kate and I have a great conversation about the various usages of psychedelics. There's a lot of medical research done lately around psychedelics for treatment of things like depression, addiction. And we also talk a little bit about the history of psychedelics, how public perception has changed over the years, and some of the legal efforts around decriminalization and legalization of psychedelics that has happened in some cities and states. And I was very curious to learn about what's happening on that front here in Nevada. One thing that I really enjoy about this podcast is that I get to talk to a wide variety of guests and learn a lot. Sometimes the issues are specific local to the Reno area, but sometimes they're just more interesting, bigger picture conversations around things that are happening all around the country or the world. I think that our perception of psychedelics has changed a lot in recent years, and I learned a ton from this episode. I hope that you will as well. This episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia Sierra Nevada. We have a new name. It's not just DJ Trivia Nevada anymore. It's DJ Trivia Sierra Nevada because we have new venues on the California side of the border, which is very exciting as we're finding new places to share our love of trivia and music with more folks in the Reno area. Go to DJTriviaNevada.com. The website stays the same still, DJTriviaNevada.com. To find a venue near you, I hosted a couple local venues, but we have 20-something venues around the Reno and Sparks area for you to play trivia. Check out the website to find one near you. Find a host you like, find a venue you like. It's a ton of fun, and I really hope that you will check it out. If you haven't played before, now is a great time to start. Our league season begins the week of June 19th. We run a league a couple times a year, so if you play at the same venue with the same team name, you're automatically participating in the league, and at the end of the season, our top teams from each venue compete in playoff games, and then finally, a championship game, which is very exciting. So if you haven't played DJ Trivia yet, it is a great time to start. Find a venue near you at DJTriviaNevada.com. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. I talk a lot about local news and local reporting because I think it's really important for us to know what's going on in our city. I am trying to do my part with this podcast, but it's a weekly show that's planned pretty far in advance, so I'm not always covering the news of the day. Thankfully, This Is Reno is doing a very good job of that. A lot of times the TV news isn't covering everything that you want to know about happening here locally, but This Is Reno does a really great job of detailed local reporting around the issues that matter most. You can find them at thisisreno.com or follow them on Facebook or Instagram at This Is Reno. Bob has also started doing a podcast again, which is really great. So there's interviews that are really relevant to what's happening in the news. So follow This Is Reno, find them on social media, follow the This Is Reno podcast, wherever you get podcasts. And thank you, Bob and This Is Reno, for the work that you're doing. Again, that's thisisreno.com. If you have any guest suggestions, ideas for future episodes, topics you'd like to hear on the show, I would love to hear them. I love to hear from listeners, so send me your feedback. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com, or shoot me a message on Instagram. Instagram is a great way to get a hold of me. My handle there is at renoites. And now, this week's guest, Kate Cotter. Kate Cotter, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be here. 
yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. This episode is going to be all about psychedelics and the Sierra Psychedelic Society, which I think is a really interesting topic that a lot of people probably don't know that much about. I know that I don't. I'm vaguely familiar with psychedelics. Uh, I used to live in Oregon. I know there's a lot of kind of decriminalization effort in some states, and I think Oregon has done some of that with psilocybin mushrooms. So Mm -hmm. I think that the best place for us to start is probably just an explanation of what are psychedelics? So like, what are psychedelic drugs and how are they used today? Because I think a lot of people have the idea of like, you know, hippies in the 60s or, you know, that's a long time ago. (laughs) That's like 60 years ago now when you're looking at like the hippie era. And I think psychedelics have really changed how they're used, who they're used by, what they're used for, those kind of things. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about what are psychedelics and how are people using them now? Sure, sure. Well, there are the classic psychedelics, which generally are considered psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, hallucinogen types. The definition of psychedelics has expanded quite a bit. (laughs) There are empathogens like MDMA, which is not considered a classic psychedelic, but has its seat at the table, so to speak, which has been used very much more recently for treatment with PTSD. In 2018, the FDA granted it breakthrough therapy. I'm not mistaken about that. So there are a number of studies going on with PTSD and MDMA, as well as with psilocybin for depression and anxiety. They have new studies coming out for eating disorders and I believe Alzheimer's as well. And anyway, there's a lot of those. But to get back to your question, We also have ketamine, which is a dissociative, but is considered also in this realm of psychedelics, which has had huge benefits with depression. Um, I also believe with with trauma as well. And so this is up for debate. Some would say that cannabis is a psychedelic, but most people don't kind of go there with the cannabis piece. But we also have mescaline-containing cacti, so San Pedro, peyote, those type we have ayahuasca and ibogaine. Ayahuasca is native to Peru and has been known for a lot of treatment with addiction and a lot of other psychospiritual journeys. Ibogaine is sort of the African counterpart. It's an African root bark native to Gabon. And iboga is the name of the, <laughs> the tree. And then ibogaine is actually an alkaloid that's extracted from that. And they discovered complete interruption of withdrawal symptoms. It's been hugely beneficial for people struggling with addiction, particularly with opiates and other substances. Those are all considered Schedule One federal offenses still. I'm curious about the different uses of psychedelics because they seem potentially in conflict with each other. There's different appeals to these different psychedelics for different purposes. For example, ketamine for depression, which is a very kind of like normalized medical procedure. Like I have friends who do ketamine treatment for depression. They go into what looks and feels like a doctor's office. They do the infusion. It's It feels like traditional medicine, basically. Mm-hmm. And then there's also, you mentioned the, the spiritual and the indigenous, and there's things like the ayahuasca retreats, and there's a lot of ceremony involved, and it's very spiritual. It's a different experience, obviously, a different drug, a different function on the brain. And then there's also just probably recreational use of some of these drugs, too. I mean, there's obviously 
very thoughtful, intentional use in these different kind of settings. But some people use drugs recreationally, too, and we shouldn't mm-hmm. ignore that that's part of the use cases. Having all those different ways that people use psychedelics and all those different goals and functions that they perform, like, what do you think the right way is to think about who uses psychedelics and why? Is there a, a good way and a bad way? Is there, you know, appropriate and inappropriate use? Do you try to just take a, a, a less judgmental attitude towards how people choose to use psychedelics and why? Uh, what's your general thinking about kind of the different types of ways that people use psychedelics? I mean, there are people that have very strong opinions about this, surely, but I think first and foremost, it's very important with harm reduction, testing, knowing what you're doing, what you're getting, <laughs> mm-hmm. what it is, testing it, understanding the nature of the substance, understanding the importance of set and setting. Can you explain set and setting real quick for people that aren't that familiar? Because I think those are important terms that people who are familiar with psychedelics uh, mm-hmm. are aware of, but a lot of people might not be. Yeah, yeah, of course. When we speak about set and setting, we're we're speaking about the the mindset that you're in and the setting physical setting that you're in when you do a psychedelic because you're so highly sensitized that it really can inform the experience that you're having, that you're going to have. So taking time to prepare ahead of time, making sure that you're in an appropriate setting where you'll be safe, especially if you haven't done it before, have somebody there, these kind of precautions and also just intentions as far as, you know, ceremony and journeying, there are a lot of ways to go about that. And it's really, I find it to be very valuable to set an intention and to take time and preparation. I'm also not somebody who thinks that that you can't have a mystical experience in a public setting at a concert because you can. I think it's just a matter of taking into consideration they are non-specific amplifiers. So if you're going to be in a public setting and there's a lot of stimuli and it's a lot of craziness, you might have a very unpredictable experience. And it could be for for the for the better or it could be for the more challenging. I tend to be pretty conservative about where and when I do psychedelics, even as somebody who's very experienced with psychedelics. I'm hesitant to go into big public spaces with a lot of people, but some people are feel very drawn to that. And sometimes that's their gateway into having a beautiful experience is being with some friends and, you know, doing that. So I don't find myself getting ivory tower about how to do it as long as, you know, as there's a safety issue is considered. I think it's really fascinating in the current landscape where we're talking about the legislation and the policy reform and you know, clinical settings, some people would only feel comfortable going and pursuing psychedelic therapy in a clinical setting. Others would never be interested in doing that. And I think it's really important to take into consideration <laughs> that it's not for everybody. And that's where I always want to bring it back to some of the, you know, honoring the traditions that the plant medicines come from too, as much as I'm very excited about all of the the neuroscience and the clinical trials and these breakthroughs, hugely excited. But I feel like it's important to keep both in perspective so that we don't end up disenfranchising certain aspects of the population that may not have access to that or have $5,000 for a ketamine treatment. But I think that is a great question that you ask about the the nature of where is the best and how is there one way that's sort of kosher and one way that's not. And I would just say 
taking precaution, but they work in their own way and you tend to get what what you need, not always what you think you're going to get. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it, it is interesting that there people have different attitudes towards psychedelics about how and when and why they would use them. And I do think it's the right approach to be open-minded about that and not judgmental about, well, this is the only way that's the right way. And doing a, a, you know, the clinical setting is the only appropriate way to do this. I think you're right. As long as you are aware of what you are doing, aware of what you're putting in your body, informed about what you may expect, those kind of things, I think that's much more important than trying to say, this is the only way that is the right way to do it. Like you mentioned, it's like inclusion. You don't want people to lose the opportunity to experience the benefits of these things because they don't have access to maybe the clinical setting. Mm -hmm. I know they all work differently on different receptors and stuff, but can you just give a general sense of kind of how some psychedelics work in the brain? Like what is the, what's the function there that gives them their effect? How does it work on the brain? Cause I know a lot of the fears around psychedelics, at least from my, from my youth, from my, you know, dare in school or whatever. It's like, <laughs> Oh no, the LSD will melt your brain and you you'll jump out a window, like fry, your, fry your brain, flashbacks, whatever, all these things. Can you just talk a little bit about what the actual, the mechanism is for some of these psychedelics on the brain and how they work and whether they are that dangerous or what makes them dangerous or not. Can you just kind of give a little bit of the, like the biological part? Yeah. So this is what I, I just think is really fascinating, particularly with, well, with all of them, let's be honest. But f for example, with psilocybin mushrooms and LSD, which are classic hallucinogens, they act on the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. And one of the most prominent researchers in the world, Robin Carhart Harris, has put out a number of research papers about this. One of them, he has an entropic brain, rebus. He describes quite a number of things, but the best I can try to describe in layman's terms, and Pollen actually came up with this metaphor, I believe, with how to change your mind in his book. So we have these neural grooves that have been sort of laid down over time in our brain. And they're particularly prominent when you have rumination, depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, anything that is kind of just, um, since we don't have the we don't have video recording, can't see, but these deeply grooved neural ruts in our brain, like a sled on a hill with snow and it goes down and then there's a slight bit of a track. So it kind of falls into the track again. They get reinforced. And when you introduce a psychedelic, it creates entropy in the brain. So it's essentially, it relaxes these, these grooves and it basically smooths out. It's kind of like a biohack essentially. And it allows you to repattern this. And you can go ahead and repattern the same thoughts if you want to do that. But if you are thoughtfully trying to have a practice of mindfulness or meditation or being just self-aware, it is a profound ability to work with depression, anxiety. And there's there's some debate about whether anxiety is something with microdosing because it can amplify anxiety. But speaking from personal experience, I had like moderate to severe chronic anxiety my whole life until I started microdosing. I tried everything. And for the sake of time, you know, I won't go into what all I had tried, but I wasn't very hopeful that the microdosing was going to help, but it actually was the ticket. So I'm a firm believer in this. Dr. Fatterman, who is known as the king of microdosing and 
um, he speaks about this too. If somebody's anxious, you want to make sure that they're doing an actual subperceptual microdose because a microdose is considered usually 0.1 to 0.2. I've seen it sometimes 0.3. It's basically relative to your tolerance. So it's meant to be subthreshold, subperceptual. So you wouldn't be having a psychoactive effect from it, but it's creating the synapses in your brain. It's doing doing that work. And my experience is that that doesn't heighten anxiety. The only time that you get a bit of heightened anxiety is when you're in this liminal space where you're over the threshold and you kind of feel a little funny, which for some people can be fantastic and sometimes it's unpredictable. But so getting back to your question, there's a number of ways that these work in the brain and they are all different. With MDMA, my understanding is that, you know, I was just finishing reading The Body Keeps the Score, that seminal text on trauma, and it trauma is a very complicated topic and I wouldn't presume to to speak too much about it. But when you have a traumatic sort of imprint, for lack of a better word, it's not stored the way a normal memory would be stored. And the MDMA allows you to basically consider and revisit it without getting triggered and looped into a complete traumatic um, reaction. And this is not an area of, of my expertise at all. So I'm almost hesitant to speak too much to it. But I know that it has been profoundly helpful for a lot of people um, as far as finding a way to integrate those those pieces in the trauma. With MDMA, I always will caution people, you know, we were raised <laughs> like in the 80s where all of these drugs were the same as meth or heroin. There does need to be respect and caution taken. With MDMA, it releases your serotonin. It generally feels fantastic. But you need to make sure you're not doing it too often. And I have been told that scientifically, probably no, don't do it more than once every three months for your true baseline to be recalibrated. People can get into trouble when they're doing that at raves and they're dancing and they're not hydrating. You want to make sure that you're mindful of serotonin toxicity, not to be scaring anybody, but just to say, yes, it isn't something to be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, the beautiful thing about psilocybin, for instance, and LSD is that they are generally considered not addictive. You may have a very profound journey. It can be quite intense. Usually you don't wake up the next day and say, I'm ready to go on another one. You need time to integrate it. Now, people are very quick to say microdosing is, you know, they're never addictive. I think addiction is a fascinating topic. I have never found them to be physiologically addictive. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this might be disagreed by many people. I think there almost anything can have a psychological addictive component if we're going to be really honest. Mm-hmm. If you take something that makes you feel good every day and it's a, I don't know, handful of chocolate chips, you might want to just keep doing that every day, but you're not going to have a, probably that big of a withdrawal symptom, you know, if you stop right. the chocolate chips. But, you know, just my two cents about that. But I've never felt any sort of a physiological backlash from going off microdosing, even if I've been on it, or even a psychological backlash of going off of it. I will typically just forget to take it because I'm feeling great. It's interesting that we do think of a lot of drugs generally as addictive. Like that is part of the conversation around drugs is addiction. But 
a lot of psychedelics are used to treat addiction. Like you mentioned, that mm-hmm. they are helpful for withdrawal symptoms, that they seem to have the, you know, the opposite effect, like the opposite mm-hmm. concern. There are addictions mm-hmm. that are really, really damaging to the body. And maybe these kind of psychedelic treatments can help. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved in psychedelic advocacy? And uh, I know you mentioned that you're an experienced user of psychedelics, but can you just talk about how you got involved in the advocacy part and how psychedelics have played a role in your life? It's kind of funny. I think of myself like one of Paul Stamitz's carpenter ants. For those that may not know the reference, there are these certain ants that I don't know how to describe it without it sounding maybe a little bit um, gory, but the spores get into the ant and then the ant feels compelled to go to the tallest hill in the area and then the spores come out of its head to go spread as far and wide as they can. And, um, you know, somewhat being facetious here, but I definitely was a very straight-laced young person. I don't even think I tried to smoke pot till I was 23. I certainly didn't drink. My brother called me a nun and was very afraid of any kind of substances. So I was not your typical, um, I would have never guessed that this would have been a personal passion later in life. But I think it was 2006. I know it was 2006. I went to Burning Man and I had somebody shared a little bit of a mushroom chocolate with me. It was enough to just give me a little bit of a body high. But I remember thinking it was beautiful and very, it was a wonderful experience. But I thought, wait a minute. This is not of the devil, and I don't think this is frying my brain right now. I'm sure that there are plenty of things out there that feel great in the moment you would think that. But um, it basically, it led me on a sort of self-inquiry about this. I am a very conscientious person, and so I systematically started exploring and looking into it. My friends nicknamed me the chemist because I got... You know, weigh everything out to the thousands of the gram and researching it and very careful for the most part about how to proceed. But what ensued was the most, um, as far as, and I mentioned this earlier, but personal and spiritual transformation and growth and healing and even the challenging experiences were some of the most beautiful experiences of my life. And as time went on, fast forward, I was really excited in 2018 when Paulin's book came out. I had been researching and had experienced a lot of really game changer experiences from psychedelics, the anxiety being one, plenty of other things too. And when the entire landscape started to shift with the clinical trials and the legalities and this new wave of the general public and research being kind of open back up undeniable results like with depression, you know, for one dose, you know, six months, I believe 80% like ameliorated. Whereas with the, and don't quote me on the statistic, but I'm pretty sure this is barely over the placebo with some of the pharmaceuticals. Anyway, just mind boggling results. So I have been really excited about having there be community and education would really love to see some policy reform locally. I ended up talking with one of our legislators several months back who was interested in and has several colleagues interested in introducing potentially a bill and was wondering if the community would support. And I said, I really do think the community 
would back this, but we need to network the community. So I just felt a sense of urgency to rekindle this endeavor with the Psychedelic Society, which had, um, as we were talking earlier, there had been um, a prior effort before COVID and it hadn't really gotten off the ground, but it seemed like the time to get it up and going again. And it has been amazing. So many really cool people came out straight away to support and we have speakers and a book club and integration circles and trainings. It just kind of blossomed immediately. So it's been a lot of fun. And the point being just to build community and provide education and promote harm reduction and advocate for the policy reform, but essentially networking the greater Northern Nevada and Northern California psychedelic communities. There are so many people that are working in in the field and so many beginners, people that haven't even ever had an experience, but that are curious to know more and maybe tentative and hearing about how it can help. And that being said, I never want to come off like I'm on a soapbox because I don't think that it's for everyone. I don't think it's necessarily safe for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's all the more reason why it's important to be having these conversations and to be learning about potential contraindications like somebody has schizophrenia in their family. This was a part that I never got back to, but when we were talking about the entropy in the brain, the reason that it's so helpful for those ruminating, looping, kind of um, fixating type conditions when you have too much entropy in the brain, that's where you get into with schizophrenia. So you want to be aware of that kind of thing. And anyway, all of it is just great personal interest and meaning to me. And so that's how I just gradually um, got involved with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that the proper education is a real key to this because I know there was a period a long time ago, like the early days of research, like in the 60s, LSD was like a, a substance that was being studied that was like fairly legitimate. There were actual trials and clinical research and all of those kind of things. And then there was definitely a drug war moral panic that shut everything down and created this propaganda effort that has shaped the way that we think about psychedelics. And as you mentioned, in recent years, there's all of this kind of change now to where there's more study and there's more conversation and there's more community and there's these efforts to change legislation. Can you talk a little bit about just that transition, basically, from the illicit and nobody knows anything phase of <laughs> psychedelics to where we're at now, where it's being more kind of legitimized and studied and the public perception is changing. You talked about microdosing, which I think is a really good example of something that no one, at least most people, had not really heard of or were talking about even just a handful of years ago. And now it's kind of like uh, I associate it with Silicon Valley, with tech workers. There's a a real kind of a culture around psychedelics and and some awareness that just did not exist a few years ago. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the how that change has happened and what you've seen in the the world of public perception? Yeah, sure. It's been an interesting transition. There was so much, as you mentioned, research that was going on, at least for I mean, a good 10 years of LSD research, I believe psilocybin too. This whole core of people that had been devoting their life and work to research with psychedelics, and some of them, like Stanislav Grof, he still continued his work with altered states of consciousness, but he went into holotropic breathwork and found other ways that didn't require substances. 
in the 70s with Nixon, where they <laughs> decided to do the, the war on drugs and to ban it. And we had this whole public perception of everything might as well be heroin and meth. There are some interesting documentaries and reveals out there, really quite eye-opening. I tend to be overly trusting and thinking that, oh, everybody, <laughs> I'm sure they I'm sure they meant the, the best of it, but people have come forward to say, no, no, we really, we had a, a strategy here, keep people kind of buying into the party line, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Timothy Leary, I think a lot of people weren't very pleased with him because he shot the effort in the foot with his activism. But fast forward, I feel like the pivotal moment was when Michael Pollan uh, put the book out, How to Change Your Mind. That's when I personally remember it shifting. There had been studies kind of coming about because he wrote about them in the book and really brought Paul Stamets to notoriety. I believe Paul Stamets even credits him with this too. Paul Stamets, you know, speaking of microdosing, so as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Fadiman really made it well-known, but Paul Stamets, they each have their own protocol. There are other protocols too. The Fadiman protocol is one day on, two days off. And Stamets originally had it five days on and two days off, but then he revised it, which I think was a smart move to four days on, three days off. But it's also, in my experience, not an exact science. It's sort of a guideline because everyone is different with what works with their body. And there's really not much research out on microdosing, but I think it has been so profoundly helpful for so many people that it stands on its own so far (laughs) anyway. Mm. So there's been an exponential amount of press and new trials coming about and definitely becoming more of a household name. What has been your experience Oh, that's a good question. I have tried a couple different psychedelics. I've used psilocybin. I have tried LSD once, and I've had good experiences every time. I've used MDMA a handful of times, not for a long time. I think I'm I'm 38 now, which makes me feel like too old for some of the drugs that have like a party kind of reputation or traditional use. And just part of it is my social experience that I don't know that many people who use psychedelics. So it hasn't been part of my social experience, which I think is part of what drives a lot of this too, is there are probably people who they don't know. They, I mean, they might know people who use psychedelics, but they don't know that they have used psychedelics or whatever, that uh, it's not part of their normal social environment. And that's kind of where I am in my life right now is that uh, I just, I don't know anyone who's part of the psychedelic community or that well-informed. So my knowledge of psychedelics is based on a handful of experiences pretty far in the past. And also Michael Pollan's book I read a couple years ago too, which was, I think, I can't recommend it highly enough to anyone who wants to just know about psychedelics because it really does feel like the overview of the history of how they work and why they work and what they're used for. Just an incredible explanation of psychedelics. So that was kind of a couple years ago where I learned more about how they work and such. And I lived in the Bay Area for a few years. So that's where I kind of like heard of the microdosing and like its uh, existence in tech culture. But I'm generally, I'm generally in favor of people understanding how their bodies work and doing things that work for them. And I'm very opposed to 
a lot of government restriction about how we can take care of ourselves. So the conversation around psychedelics, especially around things like treatment for for addiction, for trauma, for depression, that's really important to me that people are able to get the help they need. And if we have tools for that, that that's not being limited because of a really outdated and politically driven prohibition of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on that, like, how do you, what have you seen around the legislative efforts? Because I know there are some states that have decriminalized things. I know there's a, a shift in the culture, it seems like, and kind of the public perception. Is that being reflected in in the law in some ways? And where do you, where do you see that going? What are the hopes as far as both for the Sierra Psychedelic Society, but also just for yourself? Like, how do you think we as a society should be treating psychedelics? as far as like from the legal side. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're familiar with decriminalized nature. We have a Nevada chapter, decriminalized nature NV, and there have been at least now 14 cities, including Seattle and Ann Arbor, Santa Cruz, Washington, DC passed with a 96% voter approval rating. So a lot of cities have decriminalized, which is technically speaking, making it lowest law enforcement priorities, basically not allocating funds for prosecuting people for having a mushroom or whatever. <laughs> and there has been quite a, um, a push for this. What I would like to see, and we are working on this here locally and presenting a state policy brief to this effect, to see decriminalization. It's a, This is a actually really interesting question because there are so many ways to go about this. You can, you know, decriminalize all substances. You can legalize, you know, like we have with Oregon and Denver legalized psilocybin. You can have regulations. You can have limits. There is quite a hot debate about, you know, if if it's only through, and I touched on this earlier, when we have regulations and and limits, and there's limited access, and you can only go through these clinics, and you can only get the, the access to, you know, pharmaceutical companies. That's obviously a certain kind of um, privileges certain aspects of certain groups. Mm-hmm. But also, to be realistic, I have done a lot of thinking about this too, because sometimes incrementalism needs to happen. I personally feel that it's very important. I have nothing against regulations at all, and certainly nothing against clinics in clinical settings. But to reiterate from earlier, I think it's really important to realize that that is not always a path for everybody. And that ideally, if there is going to be that route, that we can at least concurrently decriminalize so that we're not privileging certain members Mm -hmm. of the society, that the people that their ethos and their their background would not find them in a clinic, um, <laughs> but maybe in a sacred ceremony or that their ethnicity and their history is in a totally different tradition. I think it's important to be really aware as we're moving forward. And it's not easy to do because it takes money to bankroll reform. And, you know, you need to make sure that people if they're, they do have a return on their investment, it's not a, it's not to me a very black and white thing. And I think it's important to have these conversations. Um, so to, the short answer is I would love to see entheogenic plants and fungi and 
I certainly wouldn't be opposed to any number of other compounds, but, you know, only tackling what we might be able to do at the moment mm-hmm. from a decriminalized nature perspective. I would love to see those decriminalized. And if that also comes with some regulations and whatnot, then great. But I would like to see access for, for people and not see people going to jail for having a mushroom I think that is unfortunate. I think it's important that we allow people to have their own relationship with nature, that they can have their own ability to direct their healing. You know, Nevada is 51st in the nation for mental health. And the degree to which these sacred plants and compounds can change leagues beyond many of the medicines that we're using to treat mental health, it seems just mind-boggling to me that we haven't already done this, but I know it's hard to reverse years and years and years. I think the benefits far outweigh the risks. And I mean, look at how destructive alcohol and smoking are, and they're legalized. And then we have these non-addictive substances that in one, I want to be careful when I say in one session, because I don't want to create this like magic magic pill kind of vibe because it generally does not work that way. Generally, mm-hmm. it's a process. But in terms of having to take pharmaceuticals, um, and for the record, I'm not I'm not anti-pharmaceutical or anything in terms of if there's a medication that helps, then that is a blessing. But it's also a blessing if you don't need to take it because there's a natural option. So mm-hmm. anyway... It's really exciting. It's really exciting that some of our legislators are willing to maybe back a controversial platform. I think this far supersedes anything along party lines. You know, you have veterans that I was talking to one of our members yesterday who's a veteran who his life entirely changed in one ketamine treatment. The insurance paid for it. The VA was like, yeah, and had him in like a matter of days and changed his whole world, you know. And there are members in our group, you know, it's it's a very diverse group of people. You know, it's not a, it's not like, you know, oh, here are a bunch of like hippie burners, you know, wanting our, not, there's anything wrong with that because I am one of those too. But <laughs> also, um, it's really easy that we can have these stereotypes in our mind. And I was overjoyed at our first meeting when we had all just really wonderful, solid, you know, professionals and moms and, you know, retired people that were interested, you know, all across the board. Mm -hmm. So um, a true definition of community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that the normalization is going to be a big part of the efforts to fix the legislation where the perception stops being that it's just a certain type of person? Like you gave this example of uh, a veteran who got treatment through the VA that is like so far removed from the stereotypical psychedelic user, right? And you talk about the diversity of people that are coming to meetings. And I think that kind of happened with marijuana too, where Mm -hmm. the initial effort was around medical marijuana, but that was a pretty broad definition of medical uses. So it was anxiety and depression. And I, I remember the days of like, you go to the the marijuana doctor to get your marijuana card. <laughs> uh, and it's like a very easy process. And it kind of normalized it for like, oh, you should try this. You can try this. It's not a big deal. And just in a handful of years, 
we have dispensaries everywhere and marijuana is very, very normalized now. I don't think that the stereotypes of the like the stoner, the lazy stoner, whatever, like a lot of different types of people get high for a lot of different reasons and in a lot of different <laughs> ways. We're recording this on 421. So yesterday, <laughs> like Facebook is flooded with posts about 420. And there's this normalization process that I think has happened. Um, mm. And I wonder if it's if you expect it to be kind of a s- similar trajectory with psychedelics, where the more quote unquote normal people are getting comfortable with the idea of psychedelics, the easier a sell it is for the, you know, the policy side. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I I do think it's a matter of that. That was, and that is part of the education piece with what we're trying to do is here. Psychedelic society is, is to educate people about what is going on because our society is pretty much saturated. I mean, it's on the cover of Newsweek mm-hmm. or was quite a while back, maybe six months ago, but it is a part of the culture and we are going through some growing pains, you know, too, as we're figuring this out because, you know, there's a shadow side to it. The idea being we are sort of getting our sea legs, I think by bringing it out into the open, normalizing it, decriminalizing it, sanctioning it so that there is accountability among therapists and there is quality control and an openness about it where people are able to source quality <laughs> um, plants or you know whatever that you're not dealing with some of the risks that come when you're keeping something repressed like that and I just don't think mm-hmm. there's anything about these to be repressed uh, we're not talking about meth we're not talking about opiates we're not talking about heroin, you know, but we've been very conditioned to feel that this is all drugs are bad, you Mm -hmm. know. What kind of um, like pushback or challenges have you received as far either for the Sierra Psychedelic Society or just in general? I mean, we're talking about all of the good things around normalization and all of these clinical settings and different opportunities for people to learn more, but it's not all sunshine and roses, right? Like what have you seen that Mm -hmm. is concerning or that slows things down or that you think is going to be a challenge to overcome if we really want to achieve the things you're trying to achieve? I think there's a lot of fear. Some of the concerns, which I don't think need to be worried about, like what about if somebody grows a poison mushroom and gives it to their friends or something like that in terms of legislation and penalties? There's already penalties for poisoning people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think it's likely that people are going to do that sort of thing. But because it's so new and I can understand the perspective you know, they want to make sure that there is some, how do we keep people safe? Mm-hmm. And that is legitimate, very legitimate. How do we keep people safe? You know, what if somebody takes some LSD and drives around? Well, I mean, I think we're more worried about the drunk drivers. I don't think it's very likely. When you actually look at the data from what the kind of things that have been prosecuted, and these substances have been around for a long time, and people have been using them underground and we don't see a lot of people driving around on LSD, but I think it's just going to take some time. And also people speaking about it that have credibility. Let's have a measured approach. Let's have open discussions. Let's, you know, unpack some of the concerns. I can completely relate. If I were a legislator and a crew of like sort of leftist hippies kind of came running at me wanting to legalize psychedelics, I would be very cautious about it. So I think 
just being able to have conversations about, you know, this is the background and all of the years of these indigenous cultures, and this is how it has been sacred. And also here are all these studies, you know, Johns Hopkins has opened this center. Here are the clinical trials. This is what is going on in the brain. These, you know, huge breakthroughs with trauma therapy, with depression and, you know, on down the list we go, it's hard to ignore that. And so the next question is, okay, how do we do this safely? And there probably will be compromises in a gradual thing. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that nothing happens all at once. And incremental is the way that things happen sometimes. Even if we can be impatient or even if we feel like something does not make sense and should be changed immediately, we live in a world where societal shifts and ideas around how we think collectively about big issues, those things don't change overnight. Even with good PR, even with good stories, even with powerful people advocating, it takes a long time, I think, for us to make these big cultural shifts. So I think it's good to have a realistic expectation about the timeline for these kind of things. But I am encouraged mm-hmm. at the trajectory, right? So even if the the speed isn't as it could be, I do appreciate that we're kind of going in the right direction. For people who want to learn more, maybe not that they want to, you know, fully delve into it. There's probably a lot of people who have no interest or no need for psychedelics themselves, but maybe they're hearing this conversation and like, oh, there's, you know, maybe there's a lot I don't understand. I think Michael Pollan's book is a really great introduction to psychedelics. How else would you recommend that people learn about or get involved or make themselves aware of what's going on and why it matters? Well, if I can do a little plug for the Psychedelic Society, I might do that. Our website is sierrapsychedelic.org. And we've been meeting the third Friday of the month. We'll be at the studio. It's a yoga studio in Midtown. And it's in the tea lounge room. It's right above Jade Dispensary. The address is 1085 South Virginia. But you can sign up for the newsletter. We have a monthly newsletter and all sorts of information on the website. And we have a Slack channel, which I can connect people to if they are interested in the integration circles or the book club. We're doing Michael Pollan's latest, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Mm. And uh, there are many, many resources out there, probably overwhelming. I love Stamets's Fantastic Fungi would always be a great place to start that movie documentary on Netflix. Have you seen that? I have not. What's it called? Fantastic Fungi? Fantastic Fungi. It came out a while ago. I'd like to revisit it. I think it's still on Netflix. First thing that came to mind was the scientific research papers, but those can be kind of dense. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, it's, it's it's good to know that they exist, even if we can't actually, like, laymen can't actually get into them. It's good to know that the research is out there if we, if we do have there. the time and energy to really delve into that. There's also, I saw a movie on Netflix a couple years ago, I think it was called Have a Good Trip, and it was all, uh, like, celebrities talking about their experiences with psychedelics, which I thought was oh, actually cool. a very cool kind of normalizing effort that, you know, it was them sharing funny stories about that time they did LSD or that time they did mushrooms. Oh, that's fun. Which I think is kind of, again, another part of the the big picture of it's not all scary stories. It's not all worrying. And even though I do appreciate the the clinical setting and I appreciate the, you know, the spiritual settings, I do think it's also probably a good thing to have some of these just 
like non-scary light stories. You know, we live in Reno. It's close to Burning Man. I'm sure that many people who are living in Reno right now, maybe listening to this, have been to Burning Man and had experiences with psychedelics and had a generally positive perception of that experience. So I think there's just sharing those stories in a way that is not so heavy probably helps kind of uh, get people a little more comfortable too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, some of some of the more profound moments have been not laying in the bed with the blindfold on. There have been those too, but being out, you know, listening to music at something like Burning Man where you're it's arguably one of the most amazing experiences that you could have. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot to be said for that, for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, I n- knew a little about psychedelics, but I do think it's a topic that most people know even less than I did. I think it's not talked about as much as it probably could be. And one of the things I'm hoping to do with this podcast is have a variety of topics that maybe are you know not talked about enough. So I'm glad that you are out there doing the advocacy work. And I'm really grateful that we were able to talk about it and kind of like share some info with people who might not be hearing about psychedelics anywhere else. Me too. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. We really appreciate it. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites and special thanks to Kate Cotter for coming on the show. I really appreciated learning a bit about the Sierra Psychedelic Society, what's going on in the world of legalization and decriminalization, awareness, definitely an educational episode. I'd love to be able to talk to people who know a lot more than I do about subjects like this, especially ones that are really important for our community and for our mental health options, really important stuff. And I was very grateful that Kate was able to take the time to come on the show. If you enjoy this episode or any other, please do me a favor and spread the word. That is my big challenge right now with the podcast is just letting people know about it. I've had a ton of great guests, a lot of really good conversations, But there are a lot of people who don't even know that this show exists. My goal is that it will be that podcast that everyone in Reno knows about and listens to, but that doesn't happen unless people help me spread the word. So if you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your family, share the posts on social media. That makes a huge, huge difference. Just sharing a post that says, hey, check out this podcast. It was really good. That introduces me to so many more people than I could do myself. So if you are willing to do that, please do. I really appreciate that. If you'd like to show some financial support to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash renoites and sign up to be an official patron of the show. This podcast takes a lot of time and a little bit of money in order to make happen, and I would love for it to eventually be financially sustainable. Even for just a couple bucks a month, it's a great way to show that you support the show, that you want it to succeed, and I really appreciate those small donations those monthly donations that really do make a difference and help me grow the show. Again, that's patreon.com slash renoites. Shout out to some of my current patrons. Thank you so much, Emily, Joaquin, Rachel, Giovanni, Haley, David, John, Vicky, Ben. I really, really appreciate the support. Thank you so much for helping to make this show financially sustainable. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you next time. (laughs) 